Hey, good morning. How are you all doing? I'm looking forward to this family service. Uh, it's going to be fun. My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Genesis, and uh, I'm excited to be with you here this morning. Have you ever been given a birthday gift or a Christmas gift, and you rip the wrapping paper off, you open up the box, and you pull the item out of the box, you set it aside, and you look at your gift, and you're like, so excited. You're like, oh my goodness, this is, a, this is a great gift. Thank you. But then as soon as you do that, the giver of the gift immediately interrupts and says, oh no, wait, look back in the box. There's, there's more to the gift. And so surprisingly, you reach over and you pick up the box and you look back in it a second time. And sure enough, you didn't see it before, but there's something else in there. And so you pull it out and you'd immediately realize, oh, this is a two-part gift. And the two parts together make it an even greater gift. Ever had that happen? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, then the moment you put your faith and trust in Christ, you were given a gift from God. And the gift you've been given is a two-part gift. But I suspect that for many Christians, and this is including myself, that we really only pulled the first part of the gift out of the box. I'm concerned that many of us haven't really even seen or made the second part of the gift our own. Today, we're continuing our series in uh, Planted, called Planted. We've been making our way through the New Testament this fall, and this morning we come to the book of Romans. And it's in Romans where the Apostle Paul describes the gospel, and he highlights and really emphasizes this second part of the gift that God has given to Christians. And so my goal today, my prayer, is to help you look back in the box. and Make sure that you've received the second part of God's gift that he's given to you. If you have your Bibles, you want to open to the book of Romans, this would be a good message to kind of follow along and underline and highlight some things as we go. Um, before we go any further, though, before we dive into Romans, uh, let me pause and let's pray together. Father, I am so thankful for your love and your grace. I am so thankful that you demonstrated your love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ, you died for us. And thank you. I'm so thankful for the good news of the gospel. I am so thankful for this book of Romans, this letter to Romans. God, you have used this passage in my life in the last year in a pretty profound way. God, would you do that for us as a church family this morning? Make your word living and active. Pour out your spirit on us. Open our eyes and help us to see that you're a glorious father and you've given us the righteousness and riches of Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to dive in in Romans. We're going to walk through Romans 1 through 4, and then I'm going to summarize the rest of Romans at the very end. But let's start with Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Here's what Paul writes. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For, the gospel, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Okay, let's first think about verse 16 here. Paul, we see here in Paul's, uh, in this passage, Paul's personal attitude about the gospel. He's not ashamed of it, meaning he is motivated to share it. He has a passion and a conviction about the gospel. Why? You know, people really only share things with others that have had a profound impact on them. You don't watch a boring movie and then go tell everybody about how boring the, mo the movie was. No, if you watch a movie that impacts you, that moves you deeply, you tell others about it. 
When Paul says that the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, he's not just stating a theological fact. He is speaking from personal experience. Paul can testify that the gospel of Jesus has had a deep impact on him. And I want to remind us today that the gospel of Jesus can have the same deep and profound impact on us as well. We can pray, Lord, make the gospel impact us the way it did the apostle Paul. Then in verse 17, Paul says, the gospel is the power of God, the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel story, the narrative of the gospel holds within it the power of God. And so when a person hears or learns or studies this gospel story, the power of God is released in their lives. And so the gospel is like this multifaceted, beautiful diamond. And here in Romans, Paul's going to lift up the diamond for us, but he wants us to focus on a specific aspect, a specific facet of the diamond, and it's this, that the righteousness of God is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now, if you go to a jewelry store to purchase a diamond, how does the jeweler uh, present or show you the diamond? They don't just hand it to you. They don't hold it out on their hand. No, they take a piece of black cloth or a black pad and they put it on there. Why? Because the beauty and the brilliance of the diamond shines brightest against the black backdrop. That black cloth highlights or magnifies the diamond. And this is in essence what Paul's going to do in these first few chapters in Romans as he starts to explain the gospel. He begins with the black cloth. I'm giving you for a warning. Paul begins with the bad news. So what's the bad news? Well, let's look at verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Okay, this is exciting. What is God's wrath? God's wrath is simply his righteous judgment against our unrighteousness. If one of my children hits another one of my children, I step in and make a judgment. Hey, that was wrong. That's not right. I give them a punishment or consequence for their unrighteousness. And what's the truth that we, have people, that we as people have, have suppressed? He says we suppress the truth. Well, he tells us a few verses later, verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever to be praised. This is the heart of our unrighteousness. This is at the heart or the root of our wickedness. The very first verse in the Bible teaches that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the creator of all things, including people. And instead of people giving their creator and thanks and acknowledging him, instead of us, the creation, giving the credit and honor and glory and attention to the creator, we give it all to the created things, which doesn't make any sense. When my wife makes dinner for our family, we thank her and show her appreciation. Why? Because she's the one who made the dinner. She deserves the credit. It's only right to give her thanks. It's good to show our appreciation to her for making us that dinner. Can you imagine my wife making the dinner and we ignore her and instead we praise the food itself? That'd be foolish. That makes no sense. But that's exactly what we have, as people have done. And Paul, and Paul says the problem isn't just that we've turned away from God. Paul says we won't turn back to him. We have hard hearts that won't repent. Look at chapter two, verse five and six. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will repay each person according to what they have done. 
because we won't repent or turn back to God, we deserve God's wrath. We will be paid or we will receive what we have earned with our righteousness. Paul's saying people will be held accountable to God for their lives. Our lives matter. How you live your life matters to God. Paul goes on to write in chapter two that God will judge both Jews and Gentiles. Even though the Israelites were in the Old Testament, they had this covenant relationship with God, even though they were been given the Old Testament law, Paul says that didn't give them any advantage because as Paul puts it in verse 13, Romans 2, 13, for it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Paul says to the Jews, let's leave this up here for just a second. Paul says to the Jews, don't take any pride in the fact that you know the law. That doesn't earn you any righteousness. It is those who obey the law that will be declared righteous. Now, how does that apply to us today? Well, I think the same principle applies to us as Christians. Many of us grew up in the church. Many of us know all the Bible stories. We know the right answers. We've heard the sermons. We know how we're supposed to live. We try hard to do all the right things. But listen, none of that earns us any righteousness in God's sight. According to this verse, look closely. How is a person declared righteous in God's sight? By obeying the law, right? And here Paul is getting at something that every one of us has got to understand. I think this is absolutely essential to grasping the gospel love of Jesus. I think this is essential for God's love to get down in your heart and to transform you from the inside out. And that is this, that your greatest need is to be declared righteous in God's sight. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever considered that? That your greatest need and my greatest need is to be declared righteous in God's sight. That is our single greatest need. The concept of righteousness is rooted in the Old Testament. When God entered into that covenant relationship with the Israelites, he gave them some terms and some instructions on how they were to live. These are referred to as the law. And the law showed the Israelites how to be in the right with God, how to relate to God appropriately, how to be good people. And if they would follow these instructions and they would be good people, they would earn their righteousness and God would declare them as righteous. Listen, whether we realize it or not, all of us want to be declared righteous. Deep down, we all want to know when we get to the end of our lives, will we have lived a good life? A few weeks ago, I watched the movie Saving Private Ryan. Have you all seen this one? It came out back in 1998. I was thinking, of, I was talking to somebody the other day and I was like, hey, have you seen this movie? And they're like, no. And then I realized they were like four years old when it came out and I realized how old I am. I'm like, oh my goodness, how did... How's that? I'm, I'm this old. I remember when this came out. Okay, so Saving Private Ryan. Uh, it stars Tom Hanks. It's a movie is set in World War II around the invasions of Normandy, the invasion of Normandy. And the plot of the movie is basically this, right? Private Ryan is one of four brothers who were all in the war. And three of the, other, of the four brothers were killed in action. And so the U.S. government uh, decides they're going to send a team of people to go and find Private Ryan and get him off the battlefield and send him home to his mother so she doesn't lose all four of her sons. And so Tom Hanks' character is tapped to lead a team of soldiers to go find him. And they eventually do, but not before several of them are killed along the way. They paid a high price. And in this Final, in the final battle scene of the movie, Tom, Kank, Tom Hanks's character dies as well. But just before he dies, he leans over to Private Ryan, whom they came to rescue, and he says to them, he says to him, 
Earn this. Earn this. And Private Ryan survives and makes it off the battlefield. Fast forward to the closing scene of the movie, and it picks up with the elderly Private Ryan now in the cemetery, kneeling down in front of the headstone of Tom Hanks' character. And decades later, here's what the elderly Ryan says. Every day I think about what you said to me. Every day I think about your words. I tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I've earned what you all did for me. And then he stands up, he looks at his wife, trembling through tears, and he asks her, tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. That's what we all want. We all wanna know. We all need to be declared righteous. We all want to know, am I good? In Romans chapter 3, Paul answers this question for us, and unfortunately, it's not, it's not the answer we're looking for. Now, keep in mind, we're still, still in the bad news. We're still looking at the black cloth. And this next verse, it's one of the more offensive passages of the New Testament. In fact, this next verse really sums up why the gospel of Christianity is offensive to so many people in our world. What's Paul's answer to the question, am I good? Chapter three, verse 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Am I righteous? Am I good? Nope. I don't mean to offend you, but here's what the gospel says. Are you righteous? Are you good? Are you a good person? You are not. You and I are not good people. Not according to what God says. No one is righteous, not even one. And a few verses later, in verse 20, Paul's going to summarize the bad news that he's shared with us so far in these first few chapters of Romans. Chapter 3, verse 20, Paul writes, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. When Paul says, by the works of the law, he means you can't work your way into righteousness. No one is going to earn righteousness by obeying the law. For example, none of us have kept all of the Ten Commandments. So what role do the Ten Commandments play for us? Well, they show us our sin and our need to be forgiven and declared righteous. It's like those electric speed limit signs on the side of the road, those annoying little signs. Why are they there? They tell you how bad of a person you are. When you go driving down the road and you're speeding and it starts flashing the red lights, you're met with your condemnation. <laughs> Ah, why are they there? They're there to show you that, hey, by the way, you're breaking the law. And that's what God's law does. It shows us that we are not righteous. Now, you may not consider yourself a Christ follower. Maybe you're here just exploring and you don't consider the Ten Commandments to be the law you measure yourself against. But we all have a moral compass. We all have a set of moral rules that we live by and we think that by following these moral rules, we can earn our righteousness. But the bad news is this, no one earns righteousness through their moral performance. No matter how hard you try, you cannot earn righteousness through your moral performance. So is there any hope for the weight coming down on you? Ah, here comes the good news. Paul's about to take that diamond and put it on the black cloth. Chapter three, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Here we go, verse 22. 
This righteousness, God's righteousness, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Here is the good news, folks. Get, people, get excited. This righteousness, the righteousness of God, is given to us through faith in Jesus Christ to all believes. Who all who believes. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you use God's law as your moral compass or not, because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And the good news is that we're all justified freely by His grace. Now, what does it mean to be justified? It simply means to be declared righteous. But there are two sides to justification, forgiveness and righteousness. Here are the two parts of the gift we've been given. Through the cross, Jesus not only offers to forgive our sins, but he also offers to give us all of his righteousness. It's like two sides of the same coin. So let me ask you, when you think about what Jesus did for you on the cross, which of the two sides do you most often think of? I don't know about you, but I've mostly considered the forgiveness side. But I've come to realize that but to fully grasp what Jesus has done for us, we have to understand both parts. So let me kind of illustrate this in a way, hopefully, that makes sense to us. Let's say you own a home, okay? Now, for most of us, we don't actually own a home. We own a mortgage. The bank owns our home. Why don't you stop making payments for a few months and see who owns your home? But let's say you owe $150,000 on your home, Okay? You have a $150,000 debt that you owe. If you are forgiven of that debt, let's say somebody comes along and says, I forgive you this debt. The bank forgives you of the debt. They just forgive it. Then what happens to your account? It's taken to zero, right? But that's just the first part of the gift. That's forgiveness. And here's the kind of personal testimony here. For the, fa- for the last 20 years that I've been following Jesus, I mainly understood the gospel to mean that my sins have been forgiven and my debt has been paid, which is true, but that's only half of justification. I didn't know it, but I've basically been operating as though my account was at zero all these years. And therefore, I've been working really hard to try to add value and worth to my account. Even though my sins had been forgiven, I've been trying to earn my righteousness. And it's exhausting. Maybe you can relate. It wasn't until this last year when I read a book by pastor and author Tim Keller called The Prodigal God that I started to realize that I I really had only embraced half of the gospel for myself. That I only received the first part of the gift. What's the other half? It's the righteousness of God that's given through faith in Jesus. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter four. Paul makes the point that Abraham's faith in the Old Testament was credited to him as righteousness. Paul in Romans is trying to make the point that we are given righteousness by faith, and he uses Abraham as the example. In verse 22, here's what he says about Abraham. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words that was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. This is so good. For those of us who believe in Jesus, God credits all of his righteousness to our accounts. And if we skip ahead to the next chapter, in chapter five, here's what Paul says, verse 17. For if by the trespass of one man, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? 
And here's where I think the Lord comes to us this morning and wants to speak to us. And it's in these two phrases. Those who receive the gift of righteousness. Have you ever received Jesus' gift of righteousness? I mean, can you think back at a time or a season of your life when you wrestled with this and when through prayer, in relationship, you said to Jesus, I want to receive, I take and receive your gift of righteousness as of my own. If you haven't had one of those moments, I think you're probably like me and you're not sure you fully grasp this. But don't be discouraged. That's why you're here this morning. This is what the Lord's trying to, I think, communicate to us as a church family. That Jesus' righteousness is a gracious, undeserved, unearned gift offered to you and me. This is the gospel. That God is so good and so gracious that he offers the righteousness of Jesus to you and me as a gift. And it was a gift that was costly to Jesus, but it's free to us. And just like any gift someone gives you, our job is to simply do what? Receive it. Receive it by faith, not by works. It's not earned. It's a gift that you can receive by placing your faith in Jesus. And notice here too that Paul uses the phrase, how much more? Paul is saying that the gift of righteousness we receive from Jesus abundantly exceeds the debt we owed him. So even though we've been forgiven this debt that is so great we could never repay it, the credit we've been given in Christ is a hundred times greater. So let me try to illustrate this with the house analogy. Go back to the house analogy. The gospel says God didn't just erase your debt and take your account to zero. He gave you a hundred times more. That would be like uh, someone giving you $15 million. Think about this. I mean, having a $150,000 debt, having your house paid off would be a total game changer for you and your family. It would change your financial status, right? If you didn't have any mortgage, you owned your home free and clear, no debt, that'd be, that'd be amazing. But my goodness, having $15 million credit to your account, in addition, that would radically change your, your family's future forever. You know what you could do and what you would do if you were given a $15 million gift, if you had all of your debt erased and $15 million was credited to your account? You'd stop trying so hard and worrying about earning enough to meet your needs. That's a game changer, isn't it? This is what Jesus' righteousness can do for us. When you receive his righteousness and make it your own, it frees you from having to earn and to meet your own needs. See, there are really two ways to be justified and declared righteous in God's sight, either through the righteousness you earn or through the righteousness that Jesus earned and offers to you as a gift. Think about it like this. Your righteousness is your resume, your report card, your reputation. Those represent your moral performance. It's the righteousness and goodness that you have earned with your life. But Jesus's righteousness is his resume, his report card, his reputation. It's Jesus's moral performance. It's the righteousness and goodness that Jesus earned with his life. Which one are you putting your faith in? Which one are you holding in your hand? And see, here's the thing about resumes and reputations. They represent our identity, our value, and our worth. They give our lives meaning and significance. They fill our accounts. So let me ask you, whose righteousness are you looking to to fill your account? 
And I'm not talking about theologically or intellectually. I'm talking about functionally on an everyday basis. Whose resume do you carry around with you in your pocket? Who do you, who or what do you look to every day for your justification, for your righteousness? Here's a couple of kind of uh, diagnosis questions, really simple. Number one, what do you take pride in? What do you take pride in? Number two, what makes you feel good about yourself? The answer to those two questions may indicate what you're really functionally justifying yourself with, where you're really getting your righteousness. Maybe it's I'm a good businessman or I'm a good employee or I'm a good parent or I'm a good spouse or I'm a good friend. I think one that applies to all of us, our biggest temptation as Christians, as Christ followers, is to take pride in simply being a good Christian. But in the book, Prodigal God, Tim Keller walks you through a study of the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. And in Jesus's parable, the older brother represents Pharisees or the Jewish leaders and teachers. And here's what Keller writes about the older brother in the parable. When the Pharisees sin, they feel terrible and repent. They may punish themselves and bewail their weaknesses. But when they finish repenting, however, they remain elder brothers. Remorse and regret is just part of the self of the self-salvation project. Pharisaical repentance, repentance over the bad things you do, doesn't go deep enough to get at the real problem. What is the problem? Pride in his good deeds rather than remorse over his bad deeds is what was keeping the older son out of the feast of salvation. The elder brother's problem is his self-righteousness. What then must we do to be saved? To find God, we must repent of the things you've done wrong, But if that's all you do, if that's all you repent of, then you may remain just an elder brother. That's me. To truly become Christians, Keller says, we must also repent of the reasons we ever did anything right. Pharisees only repent of their sins, but Christians repent for the very roots of their righteousness. In a couple of weeks, on Sunday mornings, during the second service, starting November 7th, I'm going to lead a five-week study through this book, The Prodigal God. If you'd like to join me, if this is resonating with you, uh, I'd love to have you join me. Uh, you'll, there'll be some, a place to sign up on the website in the next week or two. It's a powerful book. He really unpacks the parable in a powerful way. See, Keller's making the case that not only are we called to repent of our sins, but we're called to repent of our own righteousness. And that's been a total game changer for me. And then I wrestled, okay, that's what he says. Is that in the Bible? Where's that at? And then the Lord gave me a gift, another gift, Philippians chapter three. Here's where this looks like in the apostle Paul's life. And I think the Lord gave this to me to kind of drive this point home in my own heart and mind. In Philippians three, Paul's gonna give his personal testimony of how he has not only received the righteousness of Christ, but the righteousness of Christ is all that he wants. Paul writes this in Philippians three. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no, uh, no confidence in the, in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Paul's going to give us a list. Here we go. Paul's going to give us a list of all the reasons why he can have some confidence about himself, why he can feel good about himself, what he can boast in. Here's what he says. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. 
What did Paul just do? He just gave us his resume and report card. He just gave us his reputation. He said, if anyone has any righteousness to take pride in, I have more. But listen to what Paul says now about his righteousness, about his resume and his report card. Verse seven, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss. What's everything he's referring to? All of his righteousness, everything he did to look to for his own righteousness. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage. What does he consider garbage? All the things he used to take pride in all the things he used to receive his righteousness from, that I may gain Christ. And here's verse nine. This verse nine blew me away. And be found in him. Here's what the apostle Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own. Not having a righteousness of my own. He doesn't want any righteousness for himself. Nothing that he wants. He wants anything coming from his life that brings him righteousness. What does he want? He wants that that comes from the law, okay? Then he goes on. But that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. That's all Paul wants. That's all Paul wants. He was, gain, he was grasping this second part of the gift. I don't know about you. I want to be able to say that same thing. And here's the good news. God can do the same thing in our hearts that he did in Paul's. He can do this for us. He can absolutely transform us and free us so that all we want to do, all we desire is to have the righteousness of God, of Christ coming in and through us through faith. So let's do this. Let's throw our resumes and report cards away. Listen, it's okay to, be wanna, to wanna be a good parent. I, it's okay to wanna be a good spouse. I wanna be a good parent and a good spouse. It's okay to have a good, fruitful walk with God. But here's the difference. Jesus doesn't want us to look at those things to earn, to look to those things, to earn or receive our righteousness. He wants us to receive his righteousness, allow him to fill our accounts, allow him to give us worth and value. And this frees us from having to earn it and trying so hard. It's not, we can stop running the exhausting race. And what are we free to do at this point? If you don't have to earn something, you're free to give it. If you've got $15 million in your account, you can give. You can give worship to God. You can give in service to others instead of having to use God or use people to get what you need because Jesus has met your needs for you. Paul summarizes the message of the gospel in these first four chapters in chapter five, verse one. Here's what he says. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We now stand in grace. Where are we standing? We're standing back in the Garden of Eden. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We don't boast in our righteousness anymore. We boast in the righteousness of Christ. Whose resume and reputation and report card do you find more exciting and do you want to share with others, yours or Jesus's and what he's given to you as a gift? Okay, so this summary kind of summarizes Paul's first four chapters in Romans. And it's really all we have time to cover today, but I want to quickly summarize the whole rest of Romans. Ready? <laughs> Here we go. In Romans chapter five through eight, Paul explains how the good news changes us. First, and most importantly, the gospel changes our relationship with God. We have peace with God. There's no more condemnation, no more judgment. We've received the righteousness we need. The gospel also changes our relationship to sin. In chapter six, Paul poses the question, since we no longer have to avoid sin in order to earn righteousness, then does that mean we can go on sinning? He says, no way. Why would you wanna pick back up the very thing that has been hurting you? Now that you're freed from it, let go of it and run from it. 
The gospel also changes our relationship to the law. In chapter 7, Paul says we are now freed from the old way of earning righteousness by obeying the law. And in chapter 8, he says we're, we're told there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus and that, that those in Christ have a new way to live. And that's through the Holy Spirit. We can now follow the Holy Spirit's leadership in our lives. And that Jesus is at the right hand interceding for us and praying for us. That Jesus has given us his righteousness. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his word. He's given us the church. He's praying for us. Folks, this is a win, win, win. This is good news. Then in chapters 9 through 11, Paul addresses how the gospel impacts Israel and the Jewish people and their future. And in short, many Jewish people are going to come to know Jesus as the Messiah. In the final chapters, chapters 12 through 15 of Romans, Paul says the gospel changes the way we relate to people. Because we've received everything we need from Jesus, we are now free to give to others, to love others the way Jesus has loved us. I don't know where you're at in your relationship with the Lord. I don't know where this is hitting you, but maybe this morning you're hearing God say to you what he's been saying to me over the last year. Look back in the box. There's another part to the gift I've given you. I want you to take it into your hands and make it your own. Receive Jesus's righteousness as your own. Here's the good news. God saw that we could not meet our greatest need. But because of his great love for us, Jesus left heaven and came to earth and Jesus met our need for us. Jesus was the only one who was ever perfectly righteous and his righteousness led him all the way to the cross. And it was through his righteous life, death and resurrection that the father looked at Jesus and declared him, you are righteous. And now Jesus offers us this amazing two-part gift. First, Jesus offers to forgive our sins and erase our debt. And second, he offers us to give his declaration of righteousness, to credit all of his righteousness and riches to our account. Jesus comes to us this morning, in essence saying to you and to me, please accept and receive my righteousness as your own. It's my gift to you. Let's do that right now through prayer. Maybe you're about ready to receive that gift for the very first time, or maybe you just need to renew your mind and re-receive and take it back into your hands. Either way, let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful that you saw our greatest need. You saw that we could not meet it, and that Jesus, you left heaven and came to meet that need for us. Jesus, I trust that you're standing before us this morning, and you're saying, please accept my gift of righteousness as your own. Lord, I just ask that through the Holy Spirit, you would do that in our hearts and minds this morning. We say right now to you, Jesus, yes. I received, I receive your gift of righteousness as my own. And Father, I just pray that we would continue to meditate on this reality and think about it and let this reality, this gospel change us from the inside out. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.